Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Please give your full, undivided attention to the reading of God's holy word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against him, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son... Do not regard lightly the the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father's spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the word of God. Daniel, tried to give him a hug, but he walked off so quick. (laughs) Good morning, everyone. What a joy it is to be with you this morning in this time that we get to worship our God. I love this book of Hebrews. It was a significant book during my college years when I wrestled with why God wrote so much of what he did. And I love the theme of how it summarizes, as Pastor Harold started uh, us off in this series, that the writer of Hebrews is communicating such a wonderful truth that we are called to remember throughout our days, that Jesus is better. But when we make such a statement, one of the questions that immediately follows is, better than what? And the writer of Hebrews continues on to speak of how he is better than angels. He is better than Moses or the prophets. He's better than the priests of old. In fact, he is the ultimate high priest. He's better than the sacrificial system because he is the ultimate sacrifice of God for our sin. The writer of Hebrews reminds believers who had converted from Judaism to Christianity that Jesus was better, better than their former beliefs, their way of life, their relationships, and even better than living a persecution-free, comfortable life during their day. The Hebrew Christians decided to follow Jesus and be followers of him, even when it was not only unpopular, but it was a sure reality that they would face hardships and persecution. And like most people, when the rubber meets the road, all the nice thoughts and all the things that we could say in comfort is challenged with the questions in the heart and mind as it rises and then asks the question, is Jesus really better? I'm sure some of you have been going through really hard times, and 
And all of us went through the pandemic together, and those times were challenging in its own ways. And some of us who were extroverts, it was such a struggle to just be locked down and indoors. And, and all of us who had struggling relationships, or, or even the very ones that we say we loved and we fought so much with, it exposed so much, and the questions of those days and hard times continue to linger to today. Well, the writer of Hebrews writes this chapter to these struggling Christians, and in verse 3 he says, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Because that's what they were facing. That after they chose to follow Jesus and all the nice thoughts and feelings and the joy of their salvation began to be challenged by heavy persecution, by all the different challenges that came along their way because they chose to follow Christ. I was reminded of a mission trip I took with college students in 1995. It was my first time to the country of India. And a team of 16 college students and I were called to minister in the city of Bangalore, which is currently now called uh, Bengaluru, which is the uh, Silicon Valley of India. It's their uh, technology capital. And a missionary has been, was serving there for many years, and he had started an elementary school called St. Paul School. And there we had a chance to teach English and to teach some uh, passages from the Bible and, uh, and get a chance. And each of the students were paired into, two, uh, into a classroom of uh, kindergartners all the way up to sixth grade. And at the end of the evening, as we gathered together to download and share about our day, one of the sisters named Maria shared about her experience as she taught the sixth grade. And as she asked some of the students to share about what they believe, this one young boy, she said, raised his hand with such bright eyes and long lashes and with such a big smile on his face. He talked about how he is a Christian. And every night as he bows his head at, dinner, at the dinner table with his Hindu family, he bowed his head and he would thank Jesus for the food. And every time he prayed to Jesus, he said his father hit him and even beat him for praying to Jesus. But what perplexed Maria was that this little boy with such bright eyes and with a big smile on his face, spoke about this experience as if it was his privilege and honor because to this little boy, he believed Jesus is better. But as we discussed and talked about these events and things that we would witness, sometimes we're led to the question, why did God allow such things? In Tim Keller's book on prayer, he references the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1.17, and he writes, I keep asking that you, you may know him better. That you may know him better. And Keller comments as he says, it is, it is remarkable that in all of his writings, Paul's prayers for his friends contain no appeals for changes in their circumstances. None. That you would think that one of the things the Apostle Paul would do in light of all the persecution and struggles that the churches were going through, that he might pray for all these different circumstances. But instead, what he, what he prayed for was what he believed was most important, uh, the most important thing God could give to them. And what was it? It was to know him better. To know God's heart and his purpose in our lives helps us to live in his peace, his hope, and his enduring joy. If I could summarize this 
set of passages, I would say that what God is doing here is that God is training us to endure through difficult times by his loving discipline as we look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, our enduring joy. And so I have three questions that will help us to answer uh, some questions that hopefully will help us to navigate through tough times and to understand what I believe the writer of Hebrews is saying to these Christians of his day. The first question is, why is it so hard to have an enduring faith? Why faith? Because our joy comes from what we know to be true and not just what we see and experience. You see, in the previous chapter, in chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews defines faith for us as, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. A certainty of things we cannot see. The challenge to faith is often during the moments when the circumstances of our life, the times of pain and hurt, sorrow, and even loss, in those moments that we take our eyes off of the eternal and focus on the temporary. Instead of being able to see things from the bigger picture, we're immediately drawn into the very immediate presence of whatever we're going through. That what dominates is what's visible, not what is unseen. What is present and not what is eternal. It's normal. As finite human beings, living moment by moment and day by day, this is how we live. And yet as believers, as Christians, we're also called to live by what is true according to eternity. And how this reality influences our day-to-day response to God. To say, I trust you, Lord, is easy when the times are good or, or going well. But to say, I trust you, when you're going through really difficult days, is not an easy thing to do, no matter where you are in your faith. I remember a time back in 2008 when a well-known pastor and evangelist, Greg Laurie, who serves as the pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship and is known for his large Harvest Crusades at Anaheim Stadium, at Angel Stadium. And I remember that in, in July of 20, uh, 24th on that year, Greg Laurie lost his son Christopher to a car accident at the age of 33. And I remember in a live interview, Pastor Laurie was mentioning Though he served God for many years, even decades, that at those moments, there were moments and days when in his private place of meditation and prayer, there were dark moments where he would ask God, why? Why would you allow this to happen to my son? And as a father and as a pastor, I totally understood what he was saying. That I can only imagine if anything like that happened to my family, to my son, how I would be in that very same place, asking those very same questions. We question because we sometimes get so focused on the immediate, the emotions, and the reality of what we're facing. It's understandable. God understands. And this is where our theology, our faith, needs to help us to understand and to interpret and response to our experience each day. The circumstance can be tremendously painful and horrible. But what does that say about God? What does it say about our trust in him? What is God doing during these times? 
Well, one of the things that the writer of Hebrews suggests is that God is training us for holiness. That the training of our souls to live in this fallen world and understanding that we are promised that we will not have just easy days after trusting in Jesus. But in fact, Jesus told his disciples that you will face tribulation. But he says, take heart because I have overcome the world. What Jesus is doing there is saying, yes, these moments, these focused moments where you look at the situation and your feelings, they're real and I understand it. But the way that you are able to overcome them is when you remember that I have accomplished and I've taken care of and I understand. Last week, Pastor Harold was talking about the reality sometimes of what people do, which is to deconstruct our faith. That we lay all of our sacred beliefs on the table and we ask ourselves the hard questions of who God is. What do I really believe? And, and am I really willing to give the rest of my life to follow Jesus, this Jesus of Scripture? Do you have the answers that will give you peace in your heart and confidence to believe? Why does God allow hardships to happen to his children? In fact, the word that's used here in chapter 12 is the word discipline. It's the Greek word uh, paeda, paideia, I'm sorry, where we understand the, trans, the understanding of this word means to train, correct, and even punish for the purpose of improved behavior. It also can be understood as instruction or chastisement and correction. That in verse 11, it says, for the moment of for the moment, all discipline seemed, seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That these days, sometimes God allows. And although we, if we look at it just for the moment, it's so hard to understand. But there is a purpose. And that God desires to help us to bear fruit, a peaceful fruit of our faith. God doesn't just leave us in a, in a state of immaturity, but he desires to continue to grow us. And what this means is that as we are also referred to in this text, in this set of texts, as his children, because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. In fact, he calls us his true children and not illegitimate children, because he argues that illegitimate children will not be faced with discipline. But if you do face discipline, he said, be encouraged because you're facing discipline because you are legitimate children of God. It means that he loves you and he's trying to grow you through these times. You know, oftentimes we love, we love the idea of being loved because it makes us feel good. But we understand also that there is an aspect of love that doesn't always feel good. It's called tough love. It's what we practice with our children when we try to grow them. I remember one of the most difficult times raising our two kids was during the early years of toddlers uh, and infancy when we had to do what's called sleep training. For those of you who are unfamiliar with this, it's when the child needs to start learning how to sleep in the crib on their own or in their bedroom on their own. And uh, we have to slowly move away as we literally watch them crying with tear-filled eyes and, and them reaching out over the crib and just saying, please, if you love me, you will not leave me in this dark room alone. And you slowly walk away and you close the door. 
And that cry, that child, you hear the child crying for 45 minutes, maybe an hour or more. And they're weeping and wailing. And what they're basically saying through their crying voice is, you hate me. You don't love me. But we do love them. Because you can't sleep with your mom and dad at the age of 40. That would just be really weird. And so you learn how to sleep on your own. For a teenager who's ever had to go to work during these years of schooling or college, knowing full well that your parents have enough and sufficient income to pay for any gas or spending money that you need, but they tell you to go get a job, that's not hate. That's love. Love teaches. Love grows. Love desires what is best. This is why it's so hard to have enduring faith. Because we take our eyes off of the eternal and focus on what is immediate and often just temporary. Second, the second question that this text draws out is, what can deplete us of our enduring joy? What can deplete our joy? You see, joy is a result of hope. Joy is not happiness. Happiness is through circumstances. Some, someone gave you a gift. Something happened that you desired, so you're happy. Joy has nothing to do with the circumstances. Joy deals with the inner understanding and truth and reality that you hold and embrace even through times of loss. It is a security and a delight in knowing that you and I are in Christ and it will never be taken away. In fact, it is the assurance and the joy of knowing that he who never changes, his love and grace will also never change. It's a joy of knowing who I am, who I belong to, and understanding that it will never be taken away. What often can deplete us of our joy is what I think is the wrong expectations from God, of God and of life. There are many times when all of us, myself included, when we've said, if you love me, you wouldn't let these things happen to me. There's so many times that we as children of God would look to our Heavenly Father and say, how could you let this happen to me if you love me? Because we believe that love means to protect from all evil and pain, and that's true. But the question is not, does God love you to protect you from all pain and evil, but how and when? Because we want it immediate, right now. Deliver me out of the valley of the shadow of death. But God's plan was, to walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. In fact, God's plan was to take his own son to the cross and to deal with it for eternity and not just for the moment. We want God to be good in the way we define good. But in the world, Jesus told us very clearly that he has overcome the world. And sometimes we forget the suffering has not just an ending of its own pain and we just sit there, but it actually has a goal. It has a different purpose for which God often allows it. In Romans 5, verses 3 to 5, the, Paul writes to the Roman church, not only that, 
But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, God doesn't allow suffering for suffering's sake, but he's doing a greater work. And therefore, our joy is rooted in that hope. That I cannot have joy if I don't have hope. There's, there's a deeper joy that we experience because we believe what Jesus promised. That on the night before his crucifixion, in John 15, 11, Jesus tells and foretells of what's about to happen, how he's going to depart and leave them. But he also tells his disciples that these things I have spoken to you, that, you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And this is in light of the coming crucifixion and his departure. There's nothing that is more illustrative of this reality than a Christian funeral where there are tears of sorrow mixed with a heart full of hope because we know that though we will miss our loved one, this is not the end. We will see them in glory. If that hope was not there, that joy would be absent and vice versa. In fact, Abraham Wright, an English Catholic theologian, writes this. He says, The joy of Christ and the joy of the world cannot consist together. A heart delighted with worldly joy cannot feel the consolation of the Spirit. One of, those, one of these destroys the other. But in sanctified trouble, the comforts of God's word are felt and perceived in the most sensible manner because we now are aware and remember and are able to pull back from the moment and remember and see from the eternal perspective. When my first grandmother, of which I have two, she, when she passed away many years ago, I remember being at her funeral and feeling guilty that I, w I didn't have any sorrow or tears. I didn't cry at her funeral. I grew up with, she raised me. All I remember was, my grandmother walked around with a, a kind of a limp in her ankle because during the Korean War, as her, her family uh, were fleeing from North Korea to South Korea, there was an incident that caused her ankle to literally uh, be severed to the point where it was dangling. And so they obviously connected it again, and for the rest of her life, she had a limp. And all I thought about during her funeral was, she's with the Lord, she's never going to limp again. And I just thought, she must be so happy. And one day, I know I will see her again. It is because we know that our enduring joy is when we understand what God is doing and remember because we tend to forget. The third question that we want to ask, and this is perhaps the most important is what does it mean to consider Jesus? When these Hebrew Christians were going through their hardships, the writer of Hebrews encourages the struggling Christians in verse 2 to look to Jesus. And in verse 3, to consider him. 
And this, this, this kind of exhortation was something that was powerful. As you read through the text, you begin to realize that what the writer of Hebrews is encouraging and exhorting these struggling Christians who were growing faint-hearted and who were, who were just struggling in their faith, he says, take your eyes and now look to him. To look at him gives us the understanding that without, uh, without having one's attention distracted, to think and to fix your eyes upon him. To consider or to think with reason, the, the, with thoroughness and completeness, to think carefully. And Donald Guthrie in his Tyndale commentary in Hebrews writes, this is to consider means weighing up carefully the endurance of Christ when contemplating their own hardships. That as much as you are going through hardships, number one, know for sure that the one you cry out to and plead to and maybe even complain to understands what it means to suffer. He understands your sorrow. He's not a God who is distant and cold, majestically on some high throne, but he's a God who came and dwelt among us and took on our human flesh and lived among us. In fact, took our greatest weight. To, to consider Jesus is to know and remember who he is. Not only is he God the Son, but he's the very Son whom, he, whom God the Father gave. He is the great I Am, the one who spoke, even perhaps from a burning bush, to now confirm it in John 8 when he says, tell them that it is, that he is the I Am. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the risen one, who defeated sin and death, the fact that he rose again is significant. And this is our greatest cry for our faith. That he came to do the will of the Father and he bridged the eternal gap between life and death. To consider him eventually leads us to consider me, to consider ourselves. And it brings us to a place of humility. You know, whenever I think about what God, the Father got in this trade to give his son for me, I, I honestly know, and I think we all agree with, each, with one another, that he lost in this trade. <laughs> he gave up Jesus for me. I'm unclean. He is absolutely holy. I'm full of sin. He was absolutely sinless. I willfully rebel against God on a daily basis. He willfully submitted to the will of the Father, even to the cross. I had a beginning, and my end was sure. He had no beginning, and he had no end. I deserve full judgment. He deserved no judgment. What he deserved was praise and adoration. But I think ultimately to consider Jesus is to love Jesus. You see, when I'm in pain, when I'm hurting, I want to consider me. And I want everyone else, including God, to consider me. But what the writer of Hebrews is exhorting the Christians is to look to Christ, to consider him, to remember him, to love him. You know, in my marriage counseling in all these years, as I've talked with uh, couples in conflict and struggles, that these marital conflicts usually often arise out of pain 
misplaced expectations. Sometimes expecting our spouse almost to be God, to be the reason why I have peace and comfort and no more anxiety or stress in my life. Don't add to it. Be that thing for me. And they can't. And when I point out that it takes two to tango to make any marriage broken, there's oftentimes a response that says, yeah, yeah, I know I did this, but this person did this, 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 and that, and then the list goes on. The remedy to a broken marriage is to consider the other person, that we all live out of our brokenness. Until we understand that and embrace that, we continue to expect perfection, to which God never did with us. God calls us to love and live out of Christ-likeness, not just in our brokenness. It is to love as we vowed on our wedding day. And I tell couples to love as we have so been loved. And as I say that, I can't tell you how rebuked I feel when I don't love my wife the way I have been loved. At the moments after a fight or just yelling or saying something that I regret, all I remember is the words that I tell other couples. Hey, love your spouse as you have so been loved. My wife is going to the Artesia campus today because she's going to join the women's fellowship in the afternoon. And as I was, uh, as I was uh, preparing this message, I, I can honestly say to you that I, somehow, I just paused for a moment and I remembered how much I don't love Jen. How much I get so self-centered. And when I'm tired, when I'm hungry, when I'm stressed, I'm thinking about me. It's so hard to just think about her. The most dangerous attitude that we can have is when we have an attitude of pride. And in our day and culture, I think the word that we often use is entitlement. As if I am owed something from God. As if I can demand anything from God. If, it, if God gave us what we justly deserve, by the way, which we should never ask for, we would be dead right now. But instead, he gives us what we don't deserve. And he paused in time because sin should have been dealt with swiftly but instead he waited for judgment and I ask why the time why not immediate judgment upon the sin and the only thing I could come with is that his plan was not to destroy us but to destroy his own son that we who deserve death would not receive death but life and he who is life would receive the very death that should have been surely ours. And so to consider Jesus, to consider him, is to love him. To remember that he suffered. He endured such hardships from sinners, their hostility against him. He, he says, and as we think about what he endured, the writer of Hebrews encourages a Christian, you have not yet understood what it means to love him, to hate sin so much that you would actually even go to the point of shedding blood. How much does he call us to love him even to the point of hating our sin so much that we would be willing to take the cost even close, resembling what Jesus did, what he endured. 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Have you ever sat there and thought about that? How does the word joy come into the same sentence as the cross? Only when you understand that he endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. He loved the Father. He looked and considered the Father. In Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, this prophetic chapter of Isaiah says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. I, I, I read that word chastisement, and I remembered the book of Hebrews, and I thought, oh, just like the word chastisement in Hebrews 12. But as I looked up the Septuagint, the, the Greek version of the Bible that was translated, what I found was the word discipline, paideia. That every, form, every word of the word discipline in verse 5 and following is this form of the word paideia. That what came to my mind is that Jesus took the punitive part of discipline so that we could experience the nurturing part of discipline. And so what is our joy? What is our greatest hope? Our joy and our hope is found not in the things that we can see, but the things that are unseen. Not in the moments that we're going through now, but one day. And the future perspectives give hope and joy for the moment. We're reminded of this also in 2 Corinthians 4.16 when the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, suffering joy. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And this is where you and I are called to believe what Scripture says, that it is not comparable. No matter how painful and heavy and difficult it feels, Paul says it's not comparable to the joy waiting for us. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In 1967, a 17-year-old young lady dives into a pool and becomes a quadriplegic, which drastically changes her life for the rest of her life. Her name is Joni Erickson Tata. You might have heard of her name. You might have heard Pastor Harold quote her many times. She's a woman who understood suffering and yet finds joy in the Lord. She writes this. She writes, I'm convinced that the joy I will experience in heaven right now, this moment, makes up for all the present hardships in this wheelchair. It is why I'm sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Oh, friend, when it comes to your afflictions in this world, please take God's point of view. Soon he's going to close the curtain on sin and suffering and Satan, and you're going to experience more joy than you can possibly imagine. This coming from the lips of a quadriplegic since 17 years old. I only say that because, as a dear sister in Christ, she reminds us of a hope that we all hold to. I want to encourage you to 
remember him. Speak to him. Talk about him with others in your small group. But most of all, praise him. One of the most beautiful expressions of love for God is when we sing our praises to him. For the past two weeks, as I meditated on this text and preparing for this message, I listened repeatedly, incessantly, this one song, I Stand Amazed. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned unclean. Oh, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. Oh, how oh, marvelous and wonderful my Savior's love for me. He took my sin and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. And when the ransomed in glory his face at last I see, t'will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. Dear brothers and sisters, imagine seeing the face of the loved one we said goodbye to and seeing them face to face. Only it's Jesus. And we will sing of this joy for all the ages. I want to leave you with a quote that St. Augustine wrote. And he says, There is a joy which is not given to the ungodly, but to those who love thee for thine own sake, whose joy thou thyself art. And this is the happy life, to rejoice to thee, of thee, for thee. This is it, and there is no other. Our enduring joy is to look to Jesus, to sing of his praises, even when our soul is hurting. Dear brothers and sisters, when you're hurting, I want to encourage you. Sing to him. You'll find your soul uplifted again and finding hope and joy. He is our enduring joy. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, our world, our country, our families, our church, we all go through so much. So much so that we don't even know how to express it to one another. And so we walk around with smiles on our faces, saying everything is good. But deep down inside, only you know the anguish of the soul of days that are so hard to get by. Every one of us has our story of sorrow and and troubles. Thank you that through Jesus, those stories become stories of grace and mercy and kindness. Help us to endure and remember and find you, Lord Jesus, as we look to you and consider you to be the reason why we can sing of your praise. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our hope, our joy, and our everlasting peace. In Christ's name I pray.